On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Tyler Whitman and Dr. Bobby Jamison about their new book, Biblical Reasoning. So we cover all sorts of topics like what are the two modes of reasoning and how do they relate? What does theological retrieval really mean and what does it look like for a project like this? Why is vision such an important biblical metaphor? How does faith function in our knowing of God? What is the school of Christ? Why are we justified in presupposing that God is infinite and unchangeable when we interpret the Bible? What does the Trinity have to do with reading Scripture well? How are we to read and understand various paradoxical statements about Christ? What is part of exegesis and why is it so important? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am being a part of an interview with Connor McMakin uh, as my, I guess, what is it, co-host or or wingman in this discussion. And we are a podcast that's all about serious thinking for a serious church. And when we think about serious thinking, uh, we try to... Th- to put some meat on the bones on what that looks like. So we want to be serious about giving sort of legitimate arguments, thinking through all the aspects of it, and not just assuming that what we say and think is accurate without providing sort of an explanation for why it is the way it is. Um, But we also want to do it in a way that's virtuous and reflects the character that Christ calls us to. So we've looked at things like James 3 and said, look, I think that's a really nice model uh, obviously, it's a nice model with Scripture, but we think that's a model for how we should think about um, just thinking in general. So James tells us that the wisdom from above is you know peaceable, it's, it's open to reason. It has these sort of dispositions that we have sort of tried to put into a couple of C's, like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and for us, cheerful confessionalism. So when I talk about cheerful confessionalism, not everybody who listens to our podcast is confessional. But we want to self-consciously say, you don't have to be a curmudgeon uh, about having a deep, steep confession of faith, whether that's Nicene, the Nicene Creed, something thinner like that, or something more robust like Westminster or the Second London Confession of Faith. We think you can use these and be happy about it because it's good news. It helps us to understand what, what healthy, sound doctrine is, et cetera. So that's sort of what we try to do with the podcast, and I'm thrilled to introduce you all to two, two men we have. Uh, Dr. R.B. Jameson um, and Dr. Tyler R. Whitman, who are going to join us today to talk about their new book, Biblical Reasoning, Christological and Trinitarian Rules for Exegesis. And before we let them talk, because I know you're here to listen to them, not me, but I do want to give my own commendation. So if you don't know Bobby or Tyler, you should, because this book is fantastic. All you Don't take it from me. Look at the back. You got Fred Sanders, Matthew Levering, Jonathan Pennington, Scott Swain, all saying this book is fantastic. You've got this cool little blurb at the top, a master class in how to read the Bible directly and accurately. And for those, I know, I mean, there's ongoing discussions and debates about things relating to sort of like fourth century exegesis and classical doctrines. For those who are worried that those sort of things are sort of putting like a a straight jacket over the biblical text, I think you'll come to this and find that is not the case. Uh, the, the idea is not that we want to just ignore Scripture and force it to meet what we want it to mean for whatever reason. 
This is deep exegesis that you'll find throughout this book. So I commend it highly. I think it's fantastic, and I'm excited to talk about it. So let's go ahead and begin. For those who don't know you guys, Bobby, why don't you start? Give me just, you know, high level. What do you do? Where you're at? And then I do want to hear both of you a little bit of your take on the origin story of this book. I mean, it's both of you writing it together. So like who came up with the idea first? What, 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 what's going on there? Sure. Yeah. So Bobby Jameson, I'm an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church here in DC. And my role is kind of overall uh, preaching, teaching. I'm kind of the next main preacher after our senior pastor, Mark. And I help with uh, mentoring and overseeing our staff and also a pastoral internship that we have that's uh, two classes of men, one fall, one spring. Um, so focus on training, raising up leaders, as well as overall pastoral care. Um, I also teach part-time here and there. So I'm teaching a course for RTS here in DC on John gospel right now. My uh, my focused academic training is in New Testament. That was a PhD on the Epistle to the Hebrews at Cambridge. Um, and I think that's about it. Yeah, um, I'm Tyler. I'm Bobby's friend. And uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's part of how this book came together. But um, yeah, I, um, I, I'm, I'm here in New Orleans and I teach at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. This is my third year teaching here. Before that, I taught three years at another Baptist seminary. Um, did my work overseas, like Bobby, um, at University of St. Andrews and studied underneath the late John Webster, whose influence is obviously um, evident in the book, but uh, married happily 11 years to Jesse. We have four children. We love, uh, you know, kind of doing nature stuff and all that. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's, that's, that's me in a nutshell. I just teach. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I know that in Brandon's absence, um, I understand the, the great responsibility it is in asking this preliminary question. So um, we're going to maybe start with some definitions. Um, if you guys, I don't know who wants to go first, but um, you could you can uh, pass it back and forth. But you guys open up or at least talk about these two models of reasoning in, in the book or two modes, I should say, of reasoning. Um, what are these two modes of reasoning and how do they relate? Well, um, if I could just jump in, Jordan also asked us about the origin story, and I could sort of tell that briefly as maybe a setup for then getting into this, because in, in some ways, you know, the question you're asking is really about a main theme. Um, you know, Tyler and I have been friends since overlapping together when we were students at Southern Seminary. Uh, even back then, we were reading a lot of the same stuff, interested in the same kind of things. We would get together at conferences and keep up with each other over the years, and especially once I moved back to the States in 2017, Tyler was already teaching and I would sort of call him up and, and ask him questions about things I was reading and was trying to think through maybe a, a follow-up book project or something I had done and a project I had just come off of, which was published um, as the paradox of sonship uh, was using classical patristic sort of Trinitarian and Christological uh, understanding distilled into kind of reading tools and strategies, uh, kind of itemizing a number of classical convictions and using that as a as a, a means of digging deeper into the text of scripture and even engaging modern biblical studies debates. That's what I was doing in that book on Hebrews. And I was trying to find a way to kind of move forward in a more explicitly Trinitarian way. And Tyler, who'd been teaching systematics, teaching an elective on the Trinity, reading a ton of Augustine, um, you know, Tyler had also incorporated into his sort of teaching repertoire this idea of theological convictions as rules for exegesis, and that those can be illuminating, those can be even in a sense a uh, 
liberating and help you go deeper into the text, or maybe if you prefer further up and further in, uh, as opposed to leading away from the text or being an imposition on the text. So that key idea of kind of theological convictions as rules that can enable exegesis, Tyler and I had both been kind of circling around that for a long time. And I think it was Tyler's idea. I was bouncing some ideas off him and he said, well, wait a minute. What if we kind of bring some of my focus together, your focus together, and do effectively what amounts to kind of a handbook of how do we do a theologically ruled reading uh, in a way that gets explicitly at uh, the Trinity and Christology, um, kind of in dialogue with and drawing on modern biblical scholarship. Tyler, anything you want to add to that? And then maybe you could take a first pass at, at Connor's question. Yeah, uh, well, let me add to it and and take a first pass. So I think that there's a, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the immediate concern when someone hears that description of the book would be, well, aren't you just kind of uh, creating a sandbox, right? And then kind of arbitrary rules for uh, theology imposing itself upon the uh, the text of scripture. And that's definitely not what we want to do. And that's not what we had in mind. That's not, I think, anyone who's ever had a rule-based approach. Um, that's not ever been their approach as far as I'm aware. So having two of us, one trained in biblical studies, one trained in systematic theology, but each of us really having a hand, right, in the, the other disciplines kind of honey jar, like wanting to kind of do um, cross-disciplinary work like that, this was a perfect project for us to come together on. So exegetical reasoning, dogmatic reasoning, we, we, those are the two kind of modes of reasoning we talk about. Those are really just two moments in one single movement of thought. And um, there's a reciprocity between them, right? As you read the text of Scripture, you're also uh, developing theological convictions. And as you test those convictions on further readings of Scripture, whether in a particular passage or across the whole canon, um, those are convictions sometimes get overturned, um, and, and you develop new ones, or they become refined in, in all sorts of different ways. So we wanted to kind of model uh, how that process arises, how that how that takes place, and how that leads to uh, very broad rules, but actually rules that we think Scripture frames up for you and uh, how that leads into um, Scripture. So biblical reasoning is a whole movement of thought that's kind of like a, a back and forth, a seesaw of dogmatic and exegesis. And so exegesis is obviously the epistemological pathway there, and then the dogmatic reasoning kind of thinks with what exegesis has done and then goes back into exegesis to try to dig around, dig around deeper, and it keeps kind of going, you know, um, back and forth in that way. But Bobby? Sure. Yeah, exactly. And just to add a couple follow-up comments in support of that, um, exegesis just being drawing out of the text what is in the text, uh, following the way the words run, submitting our thoughts to the thoughts of the authors of Scripture in the order they, they're laid out, trying to sort of replicate some of the, the proportions and the arguments and the kind of why does why is this after this? Why does this follow from this in the order of Scripture itself? And then dogmatic reasoning being uh, distilling what we understand from the text of Scripture into teaching dogma, doctrine, uh, distilling that understanding of God that's enabled by this sort of sequential reading of Scripture, uh, distilling that in, in a way that that combines uh, into a more logically ordered mode. But again, a logically ordered mode where the logic is deriving from the substance of the scriptural text itself, not a kind of alien logic imposed on it, but uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, 
okay, well, who is this God? What does it mean for him to create? Uh, what's the nature of this heaven and earth he's created? What's the nature of its relationship to him? Those would all be questions that arise from reading those few words in that order. And uh, a dogmatic reasoning seeks to lay them out with their sort of internal relations to each other displayed. And just like Tyler put it, we want their, we want to show that a proper use of both those modes of reasoning is a continuous virtual spiral, a virtuous, a virtuous spiral or virtuous circle, meaning a proper reading of the text leads us to theological understanding. And a proper use of theological understanding helps us read the text better so that we're moving from exegesis to theological articulation and back. And in some ways, in evangelical circles that might have slightly more biblicist tendencies, it might be that second move that's especially seen as suspect, but it's what? It's just endemic to the Christian tradition. It's what it means to read a canon of scripture. It's what it means to interpret scripture by scripture. Um, so that's part of the, yeah, the main burden of the book. Very good. That's helpful. Uh, one thing I would love one of you guys to walk me through a little bit is early on when you're talking about these two modes, you have the, you kind of sketch out the models of how we should think about it. And one of the common ones that I probably have used myself um, is the sort of raw material and its development. So raw material being scripture itself, and then the theological enterprise sort of being the development of it. And you sort of say, that's not so helpful. We should think about it some another way. So explain to me why you don't think that one is a super helpful model and what is a better way to think about it? Sure. Yeah, that's um, in the introduction of the book, we address that. And of course, there's an element of truth in that way of putting it. Um, but I think one problem is that model implies only a kind of one-way path from scriptural text to theological formulation. It also, like if you take the raw models for a car, right? Well, the car itself is useful. The raw materials really aren't, not if you want to drive and get anywhere. <laughs> so unintentionally, it could imply a kind of superiority or clarification that the work of theology is in some way improving upon scripture. Whereas we want to say the work of theology is ministerial. It's serving our understanding. It's serving our uh, submission to uh, scripture itself so that we're not improving scripture in any way, but we're penetrating more deeply into it. That enables us to uh, ultimately come to know God better. And as means to knowing God, you know, it enables prayer. It enables preaching. It enables informed public confession. And all those things still remain subordinate to scripture as both the source and the norm of our theology. Yep. Good stuff. <laughs> That's it. Cool. So, sorry, I um, ahead, I was just gonna piggyback on that a little bit. You guys mentioned later, I think it's in chapter three, um, about using theological tradition or, or um, you know, other witnesses throughout church history to uh, to help that second part. You know, we see exegesis informs our uh, canonical understanding, but then that uh, theological tradition, canonical understanding, helps us understand each text. Um, you know, and and you hear this a lot in evangelical circles is theological retrieval, theological retrieval. Um, what do you guys think that means, that phrase theological retrieval? And how does that, how did that inform this project? And I mean, you can, and you can even add to that um, even more that you would want to say about its importance for us today. Yeah. I mean, I think retrieval is, I mean, essentially it's just a Protestant version of resourcement, right? Um, with indexed to a different ecclesiology and a different account of tradition um and and in the kind of workings of revelation but uh for us you know i, I don't know if we do we explicitly invoke that category is that something we do i don't in know first chapter 
don't, mm. I forget. But I mean, um, it, it's clearly what we're doing. Just, yeah, it's clearly what we're doing. Um, but it's not. Uh, some people think they, they they can kind of summarize a work by saying with slapping a label on it. And so I think we really try to avoid labels altogether because we want people to take the arguments themselves. This is not a uh, a compendium of patristic exegesis. This is not a particular reading of right um the father who's just not saying here's what they did go do and likewise it's a constructive argument in its own right so the retrieval aspects there just uh have to do with the fact that we take paul's words seriously in um in first corinthians he says all things are yours right and uh, he's talking about whether to the corinthians he's talking about whether that's uh, the teaching of peter or uh paul or apollos right so um <clears throat> Theologians have always taken that to be a license to say that you can um, learn from the tradition, right? The tradition is a series of attempts of faithfully hearing the word of God, heeding the word of God, and um, an act of remembrance, right, of the Lord's teaching itself. Uh, the emphasis in Deuteronomy on remembering. Um, this is how I usually talk about uh, retrieval, is that it is an, uh, an attempt at remembering the Lord and uh, heeding his word uh, with repentance and love. So insofar as people before us have done that well, then we stand to learn from them. We're free to learn from them, but we're not bound by them necessarily because they disagree with one another often. But when you find a whole lot of them agreeing on something, that's usually a good, a good sign, right? <laughs> um, they're not it's like if you get a bunch of witnesses together and you're asking them all to give their account of something and you have a bunch of, you know, the parts where they conflict, those are the parts that need clarification. But the parts they all are recalling the same, those are the ones that you're, you know, you can be pretty sure that we, we're, we're, we're getting to the heart of the matter. So, um, so yeah, uh, retrieval is just a mode of uh, attention to Holy Scripture that says, I, on my own, am not sufficient um, to uh, receive and teach the Word of God. I need at least to be... Um, submitting to the um, the magisterium of my local church, as it were, right? I mean, the teaching office of the local church and, um, and, and, and with an ear attuned to the traditions of the church before me. So I think um, in following up on that, to Connor's question, we do talk about um, in the introduction uh, that this is a work of critically retrieving the kind of theological culture that shaped biblical interpretation of the fourth century. So pro-Nicene, theological mm. culture. And by critical retrieval, we mean, like Tyler put it, you know, not a kind of slavish obedience, but standing within a certain tradition as an active uh, participant and, a, and in critical dialogue with elements of it. So, you know, in some ways, retrieval is about um, recognizing that uh, the risen Christ has given gifts of teachers to his church. And in some ways, you know, the most important of those teachers for each of us, as Tyler put it, are the teachers of our own local church that we're learning from and seeing godliness modeled in uh, and and learning to read scripture with their help. But we also have teachers whose writings have stood the test of time and who have been helpful to the church throughout the ages and, and where there, there could be a sort of um, constellation, you know, like you perceive a constellation in the night sky, kind of constellations around certain doctrines like the Trinity and the person of Christ. 
and where there's a particularly worked out uh, approach to scriptural interpretation or approach to theology and even spiritual disciplines more more broadly, um, a, a kind of account of what does it mean to love the Lord with our mind. Um, we're trying to retrieve elements of that, uh, enough of it to be coherent and for there to be a certain shape um, to uh, the the kind of mode of interpretation we're advocating. I'm putting that a little bit abstract. It's basically it's basically you know recognizing we have a whole lot to learn from someone like Augustine or an Athanasius, and particularly where an Augustine or an Athanasius or a Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil of Caesarea, especially where they're all doing the same stuff. Mm-hmm. We want to especially be attuned to how are they doing theology? What do we stand to learn from that? Awesome. So one thing I, I really enjoyed about the book is that you sort of, the first chapter, you begin with this idea of vision, uh, which I think is profoundly important. And I don't know if I really see that in many other books that are similar to this. That's not something that I see. So pardon the pun. Sorry. So maybe you just walk me through what is this concept of vision and why is it such an important metaphor for us understanding scripture and knowing who God is? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that it shows us. So, in, in any account um, of scriptures, re- of scripture and its reading, you have to also provide a kind of implicit anthropology. And so, uh, what is the reader here that scripture desires, and what is the reader supposed to be doing and pursuing when they read scripture? That's part of a, a fully fledged theology, um, theology of, of, of scripture and its interpretation. So. That's what we're attempting to do in that first chapter is try to say, um, how do we learn from Scripture what it is that Scripture wants of its readers? And so we camp out in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and where he, the kind of apex of his prayer on behalf of his disciples is to, and for them, is to say that he wants them to see his glory. And so that's often been taken as a reference to the beatific vision. And so we trace this, you know, doing a little bit of uh, biblical theology. I don't think we call it that, but it's kind of, you know, do some good figure like Jesus. You see how this is a theme that's developed throughout scripture, that there's this longing for an eschatological vision of God. And vision is this metaphor for a full knowledge and love of God that um, quiets our heart's desires. It's, It's kind of the inherent teleology of the life of grace. And so as we read scripture, that's what we're pursuing. We're not just pursuing, you know, facts about, uh, you know, stuff that Paul was eating for breakfast or something. You know, like we're looking for um, knowledge of God in Christ. And uh, so that vision aspect helps to give a a teleology to uh, the reading of Scripture. And um, it also provides a kind of way for our book to be more than just like an introduction to hermeneutics or something. It's, it, it shows how the task of reading itself is part of the life of grace. It's part of the way that the Lord himself draws us deeper into communion with himself because the, the word is central to the Christian life and it involves um, the rescuing of creatures from sin and the renewal of their minds and the glorification of God. And so really it provides a kind of a, yeah, kind of North Star for the whole argument of the book, because it's that's the North Star of the, of the kind of, of the Christian life itself. Um, so I wanted to follow up a little bit on that chapter. I think it's in this chapter. Um, there was just it, it wasn't like you didn't develop this a lot, but I just thought this was really interesting and really important. So I wanted to ask you guys some questions about it. Was just how does faith function in our knowing of God? 
So I'm thinking here, you've got this distinction where you say faith is in this, in this sense, the instrumental cause of our purification, not on account of faith as such, but on account of its object. And I just thought, hey, this is a really, really nice way of thinking about and sort of contextualizing how faith functions. So maybe you just walk me through a little bit. You don't have to like give me a full-blown explanation, but I thought that was pretty important. Yeah, that's just invoking a kind of traditional Protestant account of faith in the context of the doctrine of justification is to say that faith uh, itself does not save, right? <laughs> um, God saves, but he saves through this instrument, um, this instrumental act of the creature, right? And, and it is, which is itself a gift. And so um, that's, that's what was going on with the instrument language, is just to say that it's an instrument that God uses in, in yes, purifying us. And so it's a way... Um, really, and if I, if I can recall of that section of chapter one, I think it's a way of us offering a bit of a, a bit of a Protestant gloss on this theme of, um, ascesis and purification that you find in the fathers. So, uh, it's, it's, it's clearly there in the Bible, but the question is, well, how do we become purified? Right? Because uh, only the, the pure in heart shall see God. Right? So, it's a condition for um, for seeing God and for reading Scripture appropriately. Do you need to become a monk, right, living on uh, you know Mount Athos or something like that, you know, and kind of um, <laughs> you know um, doing all of these kind of spiritually heroic things in order to really penetrate to the depths of Scripture, or is it much more of a kind of egalitarian fear, right, where where um, anyone who has faith in Jesus can can do this? And I think we're much more inclined towards the latter view. Bobby, did you have a follow-up you wanted to add there? Oh, sure. Just just briefly, um, James 15, 9, uh, Acts 15, 9, James at the Jerusalem Council talks about the Gentiles having, uh, that God has cleansed the Gentiles' hearts by faith. And that's kind of a, um, you know, definitive, once for all, sort of a, a another description of justification, um, you know, or, or, or the new birth is a definitive effect of the new birth, uh, cleanses our hearts. Um, but then of course, that's also part that that's the basis for an ongoing process in the Christian life of faith, purifying our hearts, purifying us of idols, purifying us of false hopes. Um, and, uh, a key, a key tool in that is scripture believed, applied, understood, etc. cetera, uh, that there's an ongoing, uh, in the goal of the way, one of the goals of the way we're meant to read scripture is to have our hearts progressively cleansed from idolatry. Good stuff. So now I wanted to get sort of like a high-level overview of two of the last chapters in that first section, the School of Christ and the Curriculum of Christ. How would you go about explaining those two concepts? Uh, I think the first time I heard of something like the terminology of School of Christ was, I think, in like Scott Swain's Reformed Catholicity book. So how do you guys think of it, conceptualize it, and uh, maybe... I mean, we got a lot of pastors who listen. Should they use sort of this terminology? Do you think that's helpful for church context to explain things in light of this sort of idea? Yeah, I think so. Um, basically, it's just it's, it's trying to provide an account of the, the overall context in which we read Scripture. And what is uh, going on when we're reading Scripture? Are, are we just reading kind of leftover historical documents from a bygone era and are we chiefly just historians when we read scripture? Is that what's going on? Um, no, I I think that if you look at the way that scripture is framed for us um, and the way that it's always been approached, right, throughout the ages, not just in the fathers, but the reformers and everyone else, 
they understand scripture to stand within an, an overarching economy, right? Economia, this uh, an ordered uh, and an, uh, an orderly arrangement, right, of, of history and time and everything that's that's going somewhere. It has a plan, and so uh, within that economy, it's an economy that we describe as um, like a classroom. Okay, so uh, it, it is like a school, and Christ is our teacher. And he teaches with the curriculum of Holy Scripture. So when what we're doing when we're reading the Bible is not primarily doing detective work and historical work. We are primarily being taught. So that's the whole concept of doctrine, is that it's teaching. And before we actually set forth teaching, we have to be taught. And so um, that's really at the heart of what those two chapters are trying to articulate, is to say that this is actually a robustly biblical metaphor. and uh, one that takes us deeper into the heart of what is actually happening in exegesis. Bobby, what do you... You know, the elders of our church just read the chapter. We're going through the book chapter by chapter, and we just read the chapter and discussed the school of Christ, so chapter two. And in some ways, that's a um, overarching framework. That's one way to describe God's program of redeeming and restoring his people. Um, that that teaching is not merely external. It's not merely propagating information, um, but it is a God revealing himself, God accommodating his revelation so that it can fit our capacities. And then, of course, decisively, God renewing us, God renovating us so that we can receive that teaching and be conformed to it in our heart, mind, and soul. And so I do think... Um, you know, we don't want to neglect or downplay the category of divine teaching uh, and of being Christ's disciples. Uh, in teaching through John right now, I'm just struck by how often the disciples call him rabbi, teacher. Um, and of course, he's more than that. Uh, but there's no denigration in that title. It's a very noble and weighty title. He is the teacher and he is God himself teaching us uh, in the flesh. And so I think in some ways that can just help, um, as one of our elders pointed out who led the discussion, uh, that can really help us just to be um, persevering and uh, selfless in our teaching efforts that if, if, since this is a lens on God's overall purposes and what he's up to in his redemptive economy, uh, that teaching is a key means of conforming God's people to his ways. Uh, we should learn from, you know, we should be students of God in this economy. And then those of us who are particularly called to be teachers uh, can imitate and in our own measure be, be means of that divine teaching as well. Yeah, I, if you don't mind me jumping in, Jordan, um, you know, as a pastor, this this really rings uh, rings true. And I know I'm maybe preaching to the proverbial choir here, uh, but when pa we pastors, when we think about shepherding our people and shepherding them through, um, you know, corporate worship, uh, understanding what scripture is and what it is doing um, as God's primary teaching mechanism of his people. Um, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for more scripture, uh, more scripture driven liturgy, um, uh, that that we can get. So I, I loved those two chapters back to back. They they, they really struck a chord with me. Um, and I would even just as an example, uh, a couple of weeks ago, our associate pastor, before he read scripture um, to to our congregation, he said, "This is the only perfect thing we do on Sunday morning. It is read the text." And and it, it almost made me want to say, "Should." Should that be only what we're doing? But um, of course not, but we need other modes of teaching. But it, it just, it really uh, hits home uh, kind of what we're, what we're arguing here, what you guys are arguing here in, in this book. And so 
Um, appreciate that a lot. I, I do want to ask you though, if we move into maybe part two of the of the book, uh, when we talk about Trinitarian rules, uh, Christological rules in our exegesis, um, is it okay for us to presuppose uh, that that God is infinite and unchangeable uh, when we're interpreting the Bible? Is that is that justif- Are we justified in that uh, with that starting point? Um, I don't think we're justified in presupposing it necessarily um, without more kind of nuance, but. And that's certainly not what we advocate in chapter four, um, where we talk about the God fittingness rule. Uh, I think what we're actually trying to do is we're trying to show that this is itself a given of Scripture. This is something that Scripture encourages us to believe. And to that extent, we have to read with that in mind. And um, we offer, a, I think, a fairly uh, friendly account of how one could go about applying that in different directions, even if one wanted to take a kind of softer look at immutability like Karl Barth does or Catherine Sondrager does, even while we advocate for a more um, kind of classical or or strong account of immutability. But um, yeah, I mean, we're not about, again, going back to the comment earlier, we're not about trying to encourage people to presuppose things when they're reading scripture. We're trying to encourage people to see that this is actually how scripture um, talks and we should uh, speak and read the way scripture encourages us to speak and read. And I think one of the ways it does that is encourage us to see that God himself is infinite, unchangeable, all the rest. Good stuff. So I know you, you guys spend a lot of time thinking about how the Trinity is super important for how we read scripture. I grew up in church context and I don't think I ever heard anyone saying, hey, you should think about the Trinity when you read the Bible. It was just kind of like, just come to the Bible by itself. So why is it so critical for us to have sort of a Trinitarian lens when we think about Scripture? I mean, one uh, simple but cheeky answer would be because the Trinity is the God of the Bible. So you want to make sure you're not reading about or worshiping any other God <laughs> when you come to the Bible. But I, I, I want to be sympathetic. I appreciate, you know, if you're just reading through the Old Testament, um, I understand how there there are fewer obvious signs, fewer sort of just on the surface of the text signs of the triunity of this one true God of Israel. Um, so in, in, in certain large tracts of the Old Testament, it might not seem as um, relevant or pressing. And I think there, there's a sense in which, yeah, we're not, we're not claiming that the doctrine of the Trinity is equally pressing or equally relevant for um, every single passage of Scripture. But I do think, you know, particularly for understanding the Bible as a unified uh, book, a single canon with two halves, uh, the hinge of which is the sending of the Son and the Spirit— I think uh, to understand the unity of Scripture, the Trinity is crucial because the Trinity is that that to which the New Testament canon bears witness. Um, and then, of course, once we're into the New Testament, oh well, then then basically you really need Trinitarian categories operative on just about every page because you're going to be faced with the Man Jesus Christ, who also does and says and claims things for himself that can only be divine. So then you're faced with either blasphemy or polytheism or, ah, wait a minute, some type of plurality that's compatible with the confession of Israel's one true God. So I think people might underestimate how much they they probably already have an implicitly Trinitarian framework when Jesus is like walking around, raising the dead, forgiving sins, calming the storm, you know, and they recognize his divinity rightly in those passages. 
that's leading them to incorporate Christ's divinity into their understanding of the one true God, which is an implicitly Trinitarian move, you know, because then the Holy Spirit comes along as well. So I think I'd want to say on the one hand, kind of like Fred Sanders does in his book, The Deep Things of God, uh, evangelical believers who really do call on the Lord Jesus in faith by the power of the Spirit and are thereby enabled to call out Abba Father and address God as Father, they do know the Trinity and they're reading the Bible from within the Trinity. That said, they will be helped to grow in understanding by discerning the way Scripture speaks in explicitly Trinitarian ways. You know, that some things it says of God simply considered as one, according to his essence or nature. And some things it says of God with reference to these relations uh, that are intrinsic to who God is, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existing in relations of origin. I think that can help clarify all sorts of passages. That can help leave room for Scripture's mysteries to be intact in a way that they might otherwise seem to be contradictions. So if I wanted to make just one sort of summary pitch to a layperson to say, why are Trinitarian or Christological categories important? It's because, well, number one, you probably already have them, and this is just kind of like shining them up and clarifying them. But number two, to have those more explicit grammatical categories, it'll help you say together and understand all that scripture says together that might otherwise tempt you to think there's contradictions or one of these things can't be true or to sort of put one thing out of whack in order to squeeze this other thing in here. Cool. Uh, One area that I would really like you guys to walk me through a little bit on is chapter eight, uh, particularly related to sort of the, the two natures of Christ and part of exegesis and why that's important. I, even today I open Twitter and I see people, for me, I'm like, this, this part of the exegesis seems pretty straightforward, elementary, like obvious reading of the text for me. And yet I see people saying, well, how is it possible that the son could say, well, the father knows the time, the day or the hour, and no one else knows, therefore the son can't know. It's causing all these sort of problems and people will want to say, well, clearly then either the son has given up divine attributes or maybe he's not divine, just period. So just walk me through part of the exegesis and explain to me how it's so important for how we think about the text. Um, yeah, I'm just looking for uh, our kind of summary statement here. Yeah, so so partitive exegesis is just a label scholars have given to recognizing that Scripture speaks of Christ in a twofold way, and we need to distinguish the two sort of bases on which Scripture speaks of Christ, or we could say two different registers in which Scripture speaks of Christ. Augustine uses a musical analogy, which I think is helpful. If you hear two people singing in harmony, and one person singing a soprano line, just say say it's a woman and her you know vocal range is easily distinguished, she's singing a soprano line, and there's a man singing a bass line. Those two lines, uh, they they fit with one another, they mesh with each other, there are clear differences, um, but they're not in tension with each other. Um, That's a kind of musical metaphor Augustine uses to talk about how Scripture speaks of Christ's divinity and humanity. We can hear those different melody lines in Scripture. We need to know which one is which in order to make sense of the kind of thing that Jesus is doing. And in a sense, part of exegesis is a grammatical rule for discerning how Scripture speaks. We're, we're simply arguing in, in line with uh, basically the mainstream of the way the church has always understood this, and particularly articulated by people like Athanasius, Gregory Augustine in the 4th and 5th centuries. Part of exegesis is a sort of grammatical implication of the reality of the incarnation. Since Christ is God become man, 
since he is God the Son, existing in a true and complete human nature. We need to distinguish whether Scripture is speaking about him with reference to his divine nature or with reference to his human nature. That doesn't artificially separate those natures or create a kind of Nestorian two-subject reality. Um, That doesn't, you know, it's not a kind of rabbit pulled out of a hat. You know, I I think I see this objection again and again. Um, It's not a kind of rabbit pulled out of a hat. Aha, well, I'll just solve that problem by my clever appeal to, well, this is speaking of him as God and this as man. Well, if that's who he really is, uh, each of those resources are available to us. Kind of the what of what it means to be God is true of him, and the what of what it means to be human is also true of him. Uh, so all of those resources are at our disposal to explain any particular statement he makes or any particular action he takes. So it's downstream of the reality of the incarnation, which, by the way, is explicitly taught in Scripture. So again, it's a way of reading, reading sort of with the grain of Scripture, uh, you know, our, our kind of bottom line, therefore read scripture in such a way that you discern the different registers in which scripture speaks of Christ, yet without dividing him. Tyler, would you add anything to that? Um, no, I think that's a, a really good way of doing it. I mean, if we'd had, um, you know, if people had much larger attention spans, and we had had um, a much uh, a, a publisher that didn't care as much about um they didn't care to sell as many copies of the book, right? Which <laughs> it would not be a good publisher. Um, we, uh, w- the book would have been much longer and we would have probably really set out, I think more of the context um, for part of the exegesis and the God fittingness rule back in chapter four is one of those um, kind of, it's, it's one of those background pieces, because if you're going to talk about, um, well, you know, in a, in a given passage, how is this befitting one who is God? Well, you have to have a, a scripturally competent account of what it is to for something to befit God. What you know, like for a particular truth to be befitting to God. Well, the flip side to that is to have an account of well, what befits the other side of that equation. Is it merely what befits humanity, or what is it? And the actual larger context for that is what befits the economy. Right, so Cyril will often use this flesh, uh, this this phrase, the the economy of his flesh, and um, and and originally I, I, we had had uh, plans to write a whole chapter setting out what befits the economy, right, of his flesh, um, and um, and there's still days when I wish we had we'd done that. Whereas instead, what we what we do now is we just kind of gesture towards the distinction between theology and economy, and and that is the kind of distinction that you see played out in part of exegesis. So, part of exegesis is not again like an abstract kind of foisting of Chalcedonian categories or whatever you know back onto the text or something. It is just it's seeing that this is how Paul talks. You know, like I was just teaching last night uh in one of my classes here on the doctrine of election and was reading we were reading romans 9 and uh i was just struck again by and i think i think robbie you even used this in in the chapter uh the romans 9 bit and you just see paul himself using partitive categories right talking about jesus um being uh from right the race of israel right and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who who is God over all, blessed forever. <laughs> all of a sudden, you've got, wait, according to the flesh, there's the Christ, who is God over all. You can't make sense of that without um, part of exegesis. 
I mean, you know, most people think of that when they think of like election or something, you know, Romans 9. Well, I mean, at the very beginning, though, you've got a, a strong statement of divinity and humanity. So that larger account of what befits the economy of his flesh, I mean, that would take us longer to get into, but that would be the background. If people really wanted to kind of press in more here, they'd have to kind of do more, more work on that. It sounds like, Tyler, that you would be an advocate for maybe a sequel to uh, this book that you guys have, have, have put together for I think we've been lucky to get away with one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Jordan, uh, do you have anything else? I, I, I do have one. I think we have one more question we want them to, to, to maybe get to relatively quickly. I know we're running a little short on time. Um, but anyway, I, so at the very end of the book, I think it's chapter 10, the last chapter, you, you sort of put this all together using, uh, John chapter five. Uh, so one of you, both of you, um, walk us through uh, how all of this can be put together. You know, you talk about that toolkit, uh, putting all those tools to use, um, kind of using John five, uh, the latter half of John five that, that you guys go through in chapter 10. Sure, yeah. We picked that passage, John five seventeen to 30, because it has such rich teaching about Christ's person, and where just about every one of these rules and principles sort of sheds some light on something in the passage. Um, and so we wanted to show that this really is a toolkit. You really can put it to work, and particularly in Scripture's kind of richest Christological and Trinitarian passages, all these different tools really do fit together to give you purchase on the text and, and aid your understanding of it. Um, so we just kind of work through the text uh, thematically, working through those couple of paragraphs as closely as we can, trying to show what each tool helps us see. And I think um, particularly with the Christological and Trinitarian tools, part of what we're trying to show is that these things really are taught in Scripture. These realities really are present in Scripture. You cannot give an account of this passage without them. So, for instance, just to take one that I think might be might seem like the farthest out the branch, you know, the most likely to break off and fall, would be something like, that Scripture actually teaches the Father and the Son exist in eternal relations of origin. The Father begetting the Son, the Son, you know, being generated by the Father. Um... But, you know, John 5, 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he has also granted the Son to have life in himself. Uh, okay, what kind of life is it? Well, it's life in himself. Now we're into the God-fitting rule of what pertains to God alone. This is a unique kind of life uh, that is self-existence. Okay, but wait a minute. If it's self-existence, how is it given? How is it granted? Well, it couldn't be granted in time, like if he didn't have it, then had it later. Oh, wait a minute. So this must be an eternal gift. This must be an eternal grant. Ah, this, this eternal grant then takes us back into the Father and the Son's relationship, apart from the incarnation, apart from his becoming in the flesh to save us. Okay, so now we're into how the Father eternally relates to the Son, and he relates as one granting or giving the Son his own divine self-existent life. And so I think John 5.26, among other passages, plainly teaches the substance of what, of what is often called eternal generation. Um, we, we believe that that verse, and especially in conjunction with verses 19 and 20 about the Father showing the Son what he does, uh, the Son doing all that the Father does, um, that these Trinitarian realities are, are plainly witnessed in the text. So in a sense, that's what we're aiming at all along. Uh, what we're aiming at all along is the kind of twofold result of 
uh, Scripture really does teach the Trinity. And using these Trinitarian distinctions really does help you understand Scripture. Awesome. That's super helpful. So thank you guys for walking us through your book here. So everybody's listening. I mean, if you haven't gotten a copy yet, go get a copy. You, there apparently is also a hardcover version now that I've looked at it. So if, if you're like super nerdy into hardcovers, go for it. Um, I like paperbacks because I hate dust jackets, but I still like to have the cool cover on it. So paperbacks for me are always the win. But it's affordable, So which I love. Um, books that are in sort of like the wheelhouse of things that I'm interested in, but aren't the $100 from Brill that I have to go convince a journal to let me review and so that I can actually have a copy of it. So I, I love the fact that it's affordable. So guys, go if you're a pastor, if you're a student, I think this is going to enrich your, your ministry, your thinking. It's going to help you think well about the Bible for your own personal devotions and understanding who God is and beholding his face. So Thanks, Bobby and Tyler. This is awesome. I recommend all their stuff. So if you're listening and you know Bobby's written a bunch of books, uh, all sorts of nine marks books um, that are extremely helpful for the, the pastoral end of the spectrum. Tyler's written other books. He's got a Cambridge book that's expensive. Uh, is there a paperback version of that yet, Tyler? Uh, I don't. I, I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> okay. So well, I'll tell you, like I tell everybody, if it's expensive and you can't afford it, either find a way to review it or tell your library to go buy it. Because they have a budget for these things, and they can go buy the expensive book, and then that way everybody can enjoy it. So go check out all these resources. I think they're awesome. And for everybody who's been tuning in, thanks for listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.